We are Pro Cannabis Media. Hi, everyone. Welcome again to another edition of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young, a very special podcast and interview show that we've been running here on Pro Cannabis Media for a few years. And today we are joined by a gentleman out of New Jersey named David Kunick. He runs UCS Advisors, which stands for Using Cannabis Safely. And I can call you Dr. David, can't I, David? Yes, you can. Yes, I have, I have a couple of doctorate degrees. So it actually is Dr. David. And fun little fact for our non-cannabis companies, UCS stands for Use Common Sense. Oh, I like that. It's got that double meaning thing, which is so important when you're branding too, uh, because you can adapt your brand to the audience that you're talking to, right? It, exactly. And, and part of really how UCS came about was due to demand that was really needed in the cannabis and hemp sector. And one of the biggest things is being a medical professional by trade. Um, part of our medical code of ethics is to empower and, and to educate the patients. And that's about every aspect of medicine, which includes cannabis, which includes CBD, which it also includes saying about all the different type of alternatives instead of taking opiates or other drugs. And when it comes to business, a lot of times we don't use common sense. And sometimes if you just use common sense, the problem gets resolved very simplistically. You would, you'd think so. It, it should work out that way. But as we all know, life is a journey and, you know, life throws curveballs at us all. And who expected uh, the pandemic to hit in the middle of 2020 in a critical historic time in the development of our democracy as well? And the fact that it's actually now a political issue in a presidential race is a fascinating development for me that I've lived to see this day in my life. Do you feel that way? Um, I, I can't say I feel exactly the same exact way as you on this one. Um, what I can say is I've been involved in Canvas for over a decade. Okay. Um, I got involved back in 2009, 2010. Um, to see how much it has changed between 2010 to 2020 is night and day. Right. Um, for people to, to say to me, oh, wow, you've been doing this for over a decade. You're a pioneer in this industry. I'm like, no, I am not a pioneer whatsoever. Now, to get into the sector much earlier than other people, yes. But what I think is really interesting is not so much the political debate, but really two things. One, during COVID-19, cannabis has been deemed essential, essential in over 30 plus states, not gyms, not restaurants, <laughs> uh, not uh, salons, not barber shops, but cannabis was deemed essential in over 30 plus states. And the second thing is, is I tell people this, from, and back from 2010 to now, there's over 32 states have medical cannabis laws. Right. That's pretty impressive. Absolutely. And to see how many more states we have on the ballot for this November for either legalization or medical use, it's just absolutely mind-blowing. And it, it's funny, um, when you talk about it as an essential substance, it does go to the fact that it's a, it's a medicinal plant. 
that has been part of our world in medicine for thousands of years. One of the most interesting factoids that I discovered over the last uh, few months as I continue to get more and more knowledge about the history and the usage of this is that doctors in the United States in the 1920s wrote 3 million prescriptions for cannabis. Now this obviously was before 1937 and the, the uh, Harry Anslinger and the banning of it all and, and DuPont and Hearst and all those evil white capitalists that, that saw this as a, an evil weed. And they didn't recognize the essentialness of that medicine. And I've run this theory by many people that I've talked to, oncologists and, and doctors of cannabis, that if that drug hadn't been outlawed, would we have had as much rampant cancers that we've had in our society over the last 80 years? And every one of them says, not just cancer, but anxiety and epilepsy and aggression and all those things. Um, and they all think that this is an interesting theory. Of course, I have no proof and I'm not a doctor, but I did play one on TV once, David, I swear. I mean, well, well it's interesting. Back in, I think it was 2015, when I was interviewed by USA Today, I was quoted saying how cannabis is a modern day penicillin. Right. And I am getting quoted in several magazines and other publications and media outlets talking about that. And I tell people all the time, like, remember that the physician who invented penicillin was shunned and outlawed in the medical community. And then I think it was either 15 or 20 years later, next thing you know, he's winning the, the Nobel Prize. Right. And look, we use penicillin all the time now. And, you know, I use that as a great example all the time, because as I tell people, uh, especially uh, treating patients, well, they go, well, you know, Dr. David, how, how can I talk to my primary care physician or my orthopedic surgeon about cannabis? And I say, why can't you? And they go, what do you mean? <laughs> and I say, think about this. It is a physician's code of ethics to literally look at every different treatment option. So if your doctor is anti-cannabis, an anti-CBD and won't even talk to you about it, well, that's a problem with the physician, not you. Because yeah. when that new drug comes out by Big Pharma and that drug rep comes out and teaches them all about the new drug, what do they do? They talk to you about the new drug. Right. Same exact thing. So you mentioned the word pioneer and how people view what you're doing in, at this time. And you, you said 10 years. One of the interesting developments that I found in our little uh, journey here at Pro Cannabis Media is I still have to prove myself that I'm pro cannabis, even though I have been a regular user and a medicinal card holder since it became available to me in Massachusetts in 2013. The pioneers who were part of the advocacy movement that started normal and started a lot of the um, action in California, people like Steve D'Angelo, for instance, yep. who's, you know, age appropriate with me, we're both in our 60s. And he was involved with the um, um, going after the illegal drug from like the early 70s, and then saw it through to fruition in the in the 90s in California. He's a true pioneer, uh, because he's been fighting it. But what about the respect from those people for those of us like myself, who have just been using it, let's just say casually for most of my life. And now, um, you know, it's like I have to earn my stripes with that community. Are you finding any of that when you go out there into the cannabis space? 
You know, that's a, that's a very interesting question. Um, and I'm a little delayed in my response because <laughs> the one thing I actually teach a lot of people is that it's very rude to ask someone, oh, do you smoke? Oh, do you use cannabis? Because it's because everyone's different. Because if you're treating it as a medicine, mm-hmm. that's like me saying to you, oh, Jimmy, how many pills do you take a day for all your conditions? Or, hey, like what kind of vitamins do you take every day? You know, it's not anyone's business. Right. So, um, so that's the first aspect. The second aspect is um, myself who used to be the CEO of a publicly traded company uh, who's raised millions of dollars for my own companies and other companies who sometimes has to wear the jacket and tie, like wearing a college shirt. I'm dressed up right now. Usually I'm wearing a, a, a t-shirt and shorts. Um, and sometimes people will say, Oh, well, you're like a suit. You're like just a, a suit in the industry. You don't really get what's going on. And you have to say, well, no, don't judge a book by its cover. Right. Um, what I rather say is this, is that, and, to, and for you, Jimmy, I could ask this question just to anyone in the community is, how consistent are you with helping moving this movement forward? Are you jumping on the bandwagon just for a couple weeks, a couple months, or are you really in this to really help propel this movement forward? And, and that's kind of where I tell people about earning your stripes. It's, are you a fly-by-night company? Uh, it's kind of like going to a networking event and you meet someone and they never show up to another networking event ever again. It's like, okay, what are you really doing in this industry versus, hey, you're showing up to all the events. You're being proactive. Um, I'll take another step further. Uh, in New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, uh, we're really slow compared to a lot of other states with cannabis reform. Um, and a lot of lawyers, um, social media experts, website designers, accounts like, hey, Dr. David, how do I get involved in the industry? What do I do? What do I do? I go, well, is this thing called Google and start looking up some marijuana newsletters, sign up for that. And then there's a bunch of events. There's a bunch of online events. Show up to them. Like, what do you mean? I'm like, kind of have to earn your stripes. Like, you need to show up and let people know that you're in this. And by showing up to the events and showing your face and uh, networking and talking, people will know that you're serious about this. Absolutely. And that's what I have tried to do, certainly in my backyard in the Massachusetts area, which, of course, voted in adult use uh, back in 2016. And it took them two years just to open up the first dispensary. And the amazing thing about that is the state of Maine voted it in at the same time. And they're just now uh, have a date. I believe it's October 9th where they're opening up their first adult use dispensary. So this industry does not just you know, move forward Jimmy, because of the different legislatures and laws and regulations that a lot of these states are putting on the industry. And I guess the big question, Dr. David, who is also an advisor to a lot of startup companies is, what's the right model? You know, first of all, define what a vertical is in the cannabis space. So, uh, so vertical is where you can grow the product. Then you could also bring it to your own extraction lab if you're trying to break it down into a, uh, in, to put it into vaporizer cartridges. And then you can also sell it out of your own dispensary. So as I tell people for verticals, like doing everything in-house. You're not outsourcing anything. And I'm also really happy that you brought up Maine and Massachusetts 
because um, as someone who is, has worked with the medical marijuana caregivers of Maine for numerous years, I use the state of Maine as an example to people in other states where they think, oh my God, legalization's on the bill. We're going to pass it. We're going to be able to smoke weed the very next day. <laughs> no, that's not the case at all. And I use Massachusetts, which took two years. I use the state of Maine, which is almost taking four years for it to occur, and saying just because you get legalization doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight. And now, for startup c companies, yeah. for the last part of your question, yeah. I tell people this, is that you have to really look at yourself and say, do I want to be a business owner or do I just want to be an investor and make money off this industry? And there's nothing wrong being an investor. People don't realize you're being a business owner in a very difficult industry with a lot of rules and regulations. You're jumping through a lot of hoops and therefore you may not really want to be a business owner you might actually want to be an investor instead. And once again, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. No, absolutely not. And I've got a great opportunity for anybody out there who's listening to this. They'd like, give me a call. I'd be happy to, to chat with them. But he, you, you make a great point about when voters vote in uh, something like this, that one of the first things people do is they go outside and they light up a joint and they partake. And that's still illegal is to smoke it in public. And you know, it's, it's similar to like cracking a bottle of whiskey outside and taking a, a swig of it too, because you're not supposed to consume outside of a licensed establishment. So getting that mentality that this is going to be a controlled substance still, but it's being controlled by a set of regulations that the state cannabis commissions put in place. And uh, that, that little item still hasn't quite grasped everybody in, well, the, in the public yet, but uh, again, it's also I, about like using, sorry. like we talk about like UCS use cannabis safely. Like mm -hmm. we talk to our patients who have medical marijuana cards saying, Hey, do you know the rules for transporting cannabis? And they're like, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm like, every state has different rules and regulations where has to be a certain type of container has to be in your glove box. The glove box has to be locked. You have to make sure you have your card on you just in case you can't medicate while you're driving, you know? And, and I bring this up to people because one, if you're gonna get a medical marijuana card, mm -hmm. learn the rules and regulations for your state. And secondly, also a lot of police are still learning what the rules and regulations are. Right. You know, I, I've, I've, I've heard stories from, from patients in, in Massachusetts, Maine, Rhode Island, where they've been pulled over for cannabis smell and they've had to, had to talk with the officer to talk about what the rules and regulations are. Because right. it's a very new uh, ruling overall, and they're still and they're and they're playing catch up. So, they are, and and while there are still some good law enforcement officers who will make that stop a educational experience and an informational experience, we both know that cannabis is a civil rights issue as well because law enforcement can target people of color and harass them not inform them, not educate them, because they know that if they find something on this person, they can put them in jail. And it's happened quite a few times, as you know, um, yeah. in states like Alabama, where they found someone, um, God, I can't remember, uh, it's uh, Shane, is it Shane Worsley, I think is his name, that got arrested, medical user in Arizona, uh, pulled over, 
to get some gas on a trip, I believe, to Florida, had his uh, windows open and was playing air guitar, got the attention of a law enforcement officer from Alabama. What do you think happened? He asked him if he could search his car. And the wrong answer is, well, yes, of course you can, officer. No, the answer is no, you can't search my car. You have that right. And sure enough, this guy's been in jail for five years, and it's one of the um, people who's been targeted by the last prisoner project that Steve D'Angelo has started, trying to get all people who have been incarcerated by cannabis possession offenses out of jail. So um, as far as it being a civil rights issue, do you, you understand that uh, analogy, I'm sure? Oh, of course, of course uh, I do. And it's something that comes up a lot. Um, as someone who started 13 different companies, uh, I'm very proud of the fact I've hired uh, a lot of veterans and I've also hired numerous ex-cons. And I have a close family member that actually works for the federal prison system. And I was taught early on that people need a second chance in life. Right. And I, at the, my very first company I owned when I was 25 years old, I actually, my fourth hire was actually an ex-con who, true story, actually robbed a bank in college. He was a college football player, um, very uh, well recruited, just won money, did something, he was a stupid 19 year old kid. And he went and he robbed a bank with two other football players. Served his time and yeah, it was funny. I met him uh, actually at a gym and I, for some of my uh, medical facilities, I need some additional help. Um, he checked all the boxes, he interviewed great. And you know, from there, it was just kind of the rest is on. So, I mean, the one thing I also tell people too, is that in this industry, you know, if you really wanna make a difference, go out, hire some ex-cons, go out, hire people who have felonies on their records. Um, if you can, because you know, it's about giving that second chance and giving that people that opportunity. You know, it's funny, uh, you mentioned Massachusetts and Maine. A lot of states that are, have it on their ballot this year, like Arizona and uh, South Dakota, and I believe New Jersey as well, uh, also are talking about social equity applicants getting an opportunity to get into the business. However, I know you understand this, you really do need capital to start a business in the cannabis space because of the, the strangling those regulations that you have to have in place even before you go out and ask for a license. And while the reality is uh, it's difficult for that to do, at least people are recognizing that we need to do something to give those who have been most impacted uh, by this failed war on drugs an opportunity in this new business, but without capital, you can't get going. So uh, it's kind of a catch 22, isn't it? It, it is, um, but what's interesting is uh, Marijuana Business uh, Daily did an article and they talked about, and they interviewed a, a bunch of uh, numerous uh, African-Americans in the industry. Mm -hmm. They talked about raising capital and racism. And it was really interesting because some of them were like, yes, I experienced a lot of racism, very difficult time raising capital. And some of them saying, no, I haven't experienced it whatsoever. Hmm. And what I will say is this, is that, um, and I tell all our clients this at UCS Advisors, is that do not act like a high school senior. And people say, Dr. David, what do you mean a high school senior? And I go, great. College is what? Let's say $50,000 a year. 
the average person goes to college for five years. That's $250,000, okay? Mm-hmm. So let's take it a step further, okay? Does that mean that, okay, hey, I'm going to graduate high school. Hey, will you write me a check for $250,000? I have no game plan. I don't know what college I'm going to go to. I don't know what I'm going to major in. I don't know what I want to do for my career. That's a big ask. You know, would someone give an 18-year-old $250,000? The answer is no, okay? Right. So when people don't have their pitch deck together, their executive summary together, when, they, when they're asking for someone for money and they do not have a clear return on investment for the investor, you know, that's another red flag. So you really need to have your act together and have a clear vision. Um, A a great example is I just spoke to someone in Massachusetts um, who has uh, one of those um, social equity licenses. They're raising capital and they did a phenomenal business plan, phenomenal pitch deck, uh, on their own, they already raised about $1.75 million. And it was great. And, and I asked him, like, hey, are you finding a tough time raising money? He goes, not really, because I, I hated doing the business plan. I hated putting together the pitch deck. And I hate presenting in front of investors. And I go, that's a lot of things you don't like. He goes, yeah, but because I didn't like it, I knew I needed to do it. Oh, Versus other people that we see, oh, hey, I need money. Can you help me right away? Okay, well, what do you have? What are you offering? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Just get me money. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. So, um, it, so I will just say is we tell people here at UCS Advisors these green nuggets of information. Mm-hmm. And our number one green nugget is failure to plan is planning to fail. Once again, failure to plan is planning to fail. So you can raise money. You just got to do, do it the right way. And what is that right way? I mean, doing the planning, writing the business plan, uh, talking to people like yourselves or others who have had success in the startup and raising <clears throat> capital world. Uh, what, is the, what is the one thing that you look for in a business plan that you have to have in there to attract the capital that you're asking for? What's the, what's the biggest factor there? Is it that ROI? Is it the team? Is it the, uh, the problem, the market? What, are the one, what is the one thing you look for as far as the key when it comes to that? Well, but before it's the one thing to look for, because that's very much a trick question, mm-hmm. let's just go over some quick numbers real quick, okay? Okay. Less than, when you're pitching to investors, there's less than a 5% closure rate. Think about that. So for every 100 people you pitch your idea to, expect 5% of them or less to actually sign a check. That's not very high, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The second thing is, and this is the, the other thing we see a lot, is that however much, however much money you're going to raise, expect to spend 5 to 10% of that in actually raising the money. So if you, let's say, you want to raise $100,000, be expected to spend five to $10,000 out of your own pocket to raise that money. And and people don't realize that people think, Oh, I'm going to raise money. It's not going to cost me a penny. You know, I'll spend money on the lawyer and maybe a little money in the account, but nothing else. And people forget that. So I I tell those two people, those facts, because you get a lot of people say, Oh, I need money. Just get me money. And you say, great. Well, there's going to be a little bit of cost to it. They go, no, if you're good, you just get me money. And I tell people, well, that's like throwing shit against the wall. That's seeing what sticks. Um, 
And that's been the mantra in the cannabis industry in the beginning of this too, by the way. I think you and I talked about Dean Matt's book, uh, you know, uh, Going to Pot, Welcome to the Shit Show, and his um, description of what his first year or two in that cannabis space as a acting CFO was like. And, you know, he talked about none of these people that were getting millions and millions of dollars were doing any kind of due diligence at all. And it was kind of scary to read the book. But then I said to myself, if there is that many people out there with that much money to burn, because I'm guessing at the beginning when you're an investor and you have that kind of money, you don't invest it unless you know if you lose it, it's okay, right? For some people, yes. Some people took the risk anyway and gave money they couldn't afford to lose. And and to circle back of your question about what investor or what I look for Mm -hmm. or what investors look for, one, every investor is different, okay? It, some investors want that, hey, I don't care if I get my money back in four or five years. Some investors are like, no, I want a short-term uh, return on investment where I want my money back in less than 18 months or less than two years. Right. Um, it's also down to timing. Right. People think you can raise money year-round, and that's just not the case. There are certain times of the year it's extremely difficult to raise money, period. Um, but when you're presenting to an investor, there's just some basic 101s, which is, okay, how are you going to pay back the investor? That's kind of important. <laughs> are they getting a dividend? Is it like a loan? Are they getting equity? Is it, uh, are they going to get paid back uh, if the company gets acquired? The second thing is, is that what's your vision? Okay. What's your goal? What's your one-year, three-year, five-year plan? which a lot of people will say, well, I can't think that far ahead, Dr. David. I'm like, if you can't think for your business five years ahead and it's going to take you three years to pay back your investor, that doesn't really sound very good now, does it? No. Um, The other thing is too, which uh, some investors look at, and I'll be very frank, is how much are you paying yourself? Because you'll be amazed how many investors Will this go look at your performa and look exactly how much you're paying yourself and your employees? And they're like, yeah, that's too much money. I'm done. You know? Interesting. That's like the first thing they look at and they say, oh, no, I'm not interested in that because he values himself more than he values his company. Correct? Well, yeah, exactly. And then, and then the last part is this is 2020. There's plenty of research out there for other companies. Um, you have many publicly traded companies here in the U.S., where they show their financials. Um, you know, back in like 2010 to 2000, like 13, 14, when I was raising capital for some of my canvas companies, there wasn't that much research. There wasn't that much um, financial data out there. So it's difficult, but now it's 2020. And if you can't take the time to do your own recon work, I'm sorry. Like, because at the end of the day, when you're raising money, it's telling a subjective story backed by objective data. And there's plenty of data out there. Yes, there is. And in fact, if, and being a doctor, you understand that it really has been science and research that has driven this green wave uh, through this country, and as well as the lobbying effort in Washington, D.C., and we've gotten to this point now. Um, but I do want to ask you a question. I'm going to throw out something that I learned from a guy by the name of Bruce Linton. A lot of people in the cannabis industry recognize that name as the ex-CEO of Canopy Growth, who was involved with the uh, building of that company and has since uh, left that company. Uh, 
And I asked him a question about media companies in the cannabis space. There's been a few of them that have been properly capitalized and then have failed a few years later. Any ideas on why a media company um, had this bunch of capital, put out a bunch of content, and then wasn't able to turn that into a sustainable business venture? Any idea why it, it this has happened. Bruce told me what, what Bruce said, and I'll share it with you and then you can react. He says they weren't media companies. They were, they were trade show companies. They were conventions uh, that turned into media companies. What's your feeling about that? I agree with Bruce wholeheartedly on that. Um, and so I, I fully agree what Bruce said about that. And the other thing is too, it goes back to what's your vision? What's your plan? Right. Um, I, I've had numerous media companies come uh, interview me and also look for capital. Mm -hmm. And when they ask me about capital, I go, great. How are you going to pay back your investor? They go, I don't know. And oh. I go, well, that's failure to plan. It's planning to fail. Right. And then I go, great. Can you show me a five-year performer? Like, how do you plan on growing? Right. And you're taking your media company to the next level and capitalizing on it. Oh, we're going to get sponsors. Okay, great. What's the closure rate for getting a sponsor? They're like, what do you mean? And I go, well, you know, for every hundred uh, companies you pitch to for a sponsorship, what's the closure rate? 8%, 5%, 15%? Because <clears throat> then we can start looking at numbers and seeing where things are going. Um, on top of that, too, um, I've seen media companies have too many branches. Hey, we're going to do a podcast. We're going to do a TV show. We're doing a radio show. Then we're doing this. Like, okay, well, what's going to bring the most amount of money to you in the beginning? You know, sometimes you got to be a little more laser focused and be like a three foot putt and make it nice and simplistic. Um, but, you know, that's one of the things we do see of media companies is, is what's your clear exit strategy. Then, oh, and here's my, here's one of my other favorite ones. Um, I recently uh, was pitched by a potential cannabis movie. Okay. And they're raising money for a movie. Mm -hmm. And they sent me a 27 page pitch deck, 27 pages. Nope. And me and my team went through it. And, the, and we, me and my team all had the same exact reaction. If you are a movie company and you're going to make a movie, well, why don't you put together like a 60 to 90 second video reel of what you can do and what your vision is? <laughs> and when we went back and, and we always do, because uh, one of the things we do is we work by the hour, kind of like an accountant or a lawyer, because we want to be really cost effective from one entrepreneur to another. Mm -hmm. And we always give away our first hour and a half, two hours for free just to help people out and we asked them like, hey, where, do you have an example of, any of, your, of your films or any of your media work? And they're like, well, yeah, but why do you want to see that? I'm like, great, well, where's your example of, this, of your vision on this? Oh, you want to see that? I'm like, well, yeah, if you're the director and you want money from investors, yeah, I'd like to see like, what you want to do. Like, why are you sending me all this on a pitch deck? You can just send me a quick 60-second video reel. Uh, mine's a minute 30. It'll be in the email. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> Everything, everything has to be like that. But um, that, that's actually very interesting. And it actually makes me feel better about what I'm doing here because we do have a vision and we started the podcast. This all evolved from my podcast that I started in March of 2018. I had no idea what even a pod, well, I did know what a podcast was, but I wasn't sure what could happen with it. And the next thing I know, well, it's not even the next thing. It's been two years later. Now, all of a sudden, we're getting noticed. Now, all of a sudden, we understand 
that, and again, I teach media, so I understand that the product of media is not the content, but the people who are watching it and devouring the content. And that's the key. And then monetizing that is the key to perhaps actually making money, which as you know, is the goal of every business, isn't it, David? <laughs> yeah, it is. And, then, and also too, give yourself credit, Jimmy. Like, great, you've been doing this for two years and you said now you're starting to get noticed it's because you've been doing it for two years. Right. <clears throat> like uh, a great example is um, there was a media uh, slash event company right. that uh, they engaged with us. And when they first started with us, they were doing literally less than $8,000 a month in revenue. And within a year's time, we got them up to almost about $19,000 a month. And unfortunately, we got them built up in such a quick time that in less than a year, they said, okay, we're good, we have this. And we warned them saying, hey, listen, you need to really start to focus. Are you an event company or are you a media company? Right. Because your podcast and your shows are so inconsistent, you're going to lose your audience. Right. And you know what? Unfortunately, they, they packed up shop within six months after they, they let us go. Interesting. Audi yep. Audience is, audience is yep. the product of media. It, it, it has been for years. It's how commercial media started in this. It's how newspapers started. They had to put ads on the newspaper. They had to put ads on the radio. They had to put ads in television. And, and don't get me started about public television. But bottom line is, uh, it's about creating good content and attracting a following. And the other thing that I'm taking away from what you just said is it's the consistency of the production. It's why we are so happy that we do produce two new pieces of content every week, a podcast that I do this in the weeds, and then our weekly uh, Weed Talk News that we do with our flagship outlet, our flagship affiliate, Cannabis.net, and their founder, uh, Kurt Dalton. Um, one thing I didn't do uh, is give you an opportunity, Dr. David, to kind of tell us your story. And the other thing we haven't identified is you're actually a doctor of physical therapy, correct? Yep. And then I have a second doctor in healthcare management. So I actually have two doctorates. So how did you become so um, experienced in, in working in the business world? Uh, wow. Uh, so in general, just uh, two ears, one mouth, use them proportionately. Um, no one in my family is an entrepreneur. No one in my family owns a business. Uh, definitely not, definitely different. Like, uh, well, as I said, one of my close family members works for the federal government and here I am in cannabis for over a decade. So those are sometimes some interesting conversations. Um, <laughs> but pretty much long story short, um, I knew I wanted to be a physical therapist since I was 16 years old. Hmm. Um, I've had a bunch of surgeries on my own body. I have a bunch of hardware in my own body. And my goal was to always open up my own physical therapy clinics uh, before the age of 30, um, expand them, sell them, and then have, uh, and then retire. You know, that's the goal at 16 years old. Um, <laughs> I was very blessed to have become a therapist. I started my first clinic at 24. I did three expansion, uh, six expansions in three and a half years. My clinics were voted number one in North Jersey for eight years in a row. I had a contract for the, New York, uh, for the New York Red Bulls, which is a major league soccer team. You don't I have to tell me that, right? You, you know my background in soccer. I know you yeah. do. Okay, yeah. keep going. <laughs> uh, I, I worked with uh, NFL players. I've worked with Olympians, um, Division I college athletes. And, and 
you know, I did a lot of really cool stuff in the industry and I sold all those companies by the time I was 32. Uh, so everything I wanted to achieve in physical therapy, I achieved by the time I was 32. So what ended up happening was um, when I was about 26 years old, my first publicist said, hey, you have a baby face. You look really young and you're expanding all these clinics. You know, you might want to go get a second doctorate degree just because of maybe look good. So I actually went and got a second doctorate degree with her recommendation. Um, but then from there, what happened was for business, I just happened to be good at it. Um, I took a medical approach towards business. Um, I had to raise money for my very first business. So I was thrown into this world of fundraising uh, over 16 years ago. So from there, what ended up happening is that instead of paying someone else to do something, I'm like, well, if I can do the business myself, why not? Right. Um, I mean, a great example is I, I had a merchant services company. I can't tell you anything about merchant services. I'm not a merchant services guy, but the company was based on the West Coast. They want an East Coast presence. We said, great, give us all the rights for everything east of the Mississippi River. We paid uh, probably like $50,000, $60,000 for that. We built the company up and we sold that within nine months for about $150,000. You know, just the opportunity was there. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's Richard Branson, uh, even though he's a little brash, he'll say, you know, if you're given the opportunity of a lifetime and you don't know how to do it, say yes and then figure it out. Um, right. not that everyone really agrees with that quote, but just really from there. And then people always ask, how did you get involved in cannabis and right time, right place. We are producing a hundred articles every day on health and wellness for people and for their pets. And we were covering medical marijuana. We were covering CBD for dogs back in 2010. Wow. From there, we got involved with, uh, the testing lab sector. So we had testing labs in Denver, Las Vegas, Portland, Oregon, then from there, got involved with vaporizer companies, dispensaries, extraction facilities, and UCS Advisors was born out of need and necessity because the unofficial stat is that about up to 65% of business owners in this industry are first-time business owners. They don't know what they're doing. They need help. They need guidance. And fun little fact for you, Jimmy, we are advisors. We're not consultants. And I love telling people the difference. As per the Webster Dictionary, a consultant is hired to work on a specific problem retroactively, okay? And that's it. They come in, you hire them to work one job, then they're done. An advisor is brought in to work on a company's short-term and long-term goals while using a multidisciplinary approach and providing real-life experience. So an advisor is someone who actually has been through what you're going through, has been in your shoes, knows you got, you got to look past the hood of the car, but you still have to look just past the hood of the car because you want to make sure you don't hit any, any debris on the roadway or anything that might pop out in front of you, okay? And they want to work with every aspect of your company, not just your IT team or your HR, not just the CFO, but every aspect works together in harmony. Um, I really do want to ask you one more question about CBD and the, that uh, one little cannabinoid in the cannabis plant and how it has been exposed to um, not screw up, but you, you know what's going on in Washington, D.C. The FDA doesn't want to take responsibility for it. The DEA doesn't want to take responsibility for it. And they're pointing each other fingers at each other as far as regulating it. In the meantime, it's everywhere. 
and it's really an unregulated substance. Where do you see the future of how many millions of dollars that have been invested in CBD companies, especially when I'm learning that CBN may be the more effective cannabinoid in the plant? Well, I want to say this goes back to uh, Marijuana Business Magazine a yep. few months ago yep. when they said that an estimated uh, 55% or so of all CBD companies will go out of business right. by 2021. Right. And the reason why is that they don't have GMP, good manufacturing practices, okay? They're not getting their CBD tested by a third party. Mm -hmm. um, they're getting their CBD import from other countries that's not being tested or it's too low. Like you're getting, people, you're getting some people who, uh, uh, who have CBD and it's less than 10%, which is technically inferior CBD. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I really think when it comes down to this it, it issue is that do things the right way. CBD is becoming more mainstream. The larger CBD companies are doing it the right way where they're having the good manufacturer practices. They're having the third party lab testing. They're making sure that every aspect of their supply chain is audited and inspected and they know what's going on. So that's kind of my philosophy on that aspect when it comes to CBD. How do people get in touch with you and to perhaps take advantage of your services and advisory role? Uh, great question. The uh, best way you can go to our website, ucsadvisor.com, or always feel free. I have no problem giving up my direct email, which is david at ucsadvisor.com. Pretty simple stuff. David Kunick from UCS Advisor. Thank you so much for joining us. I learned quite a bit from you today. I enjoyed now our second conversation, and I hope there will be more in the future as well. Definitely, Jimmy. Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it. So for David Kunick from UCS Advisor, I'm the host of In the Weeds, Jimmy Young. Remember, it's a whole new world of weed out there. Use it responsibly. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We Talk Now, We Talk News, and In the Weeds are all available on most major podcast distributors like iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and our friends at clnsmedia.com and our flagship, cannabis.net. So subscribe, share, and like our videos on all the social media networks out there, including LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, The Weed Tube, and YouTube. Weed Talk and In the Weeds are two productions of pro-cannabis media supported by Revolutionary Clinics, one of the top medical cannabis dispensaries in the Massachusetts area, now with three locations in Greater Boston, two in Cambridge, and one on Broadway in Somerville. Rev Clinics has a patient-first mission. They will customize your needs as a medical patient with the proper titration and combination of strains, flavors, and products. Rev Clinics, where the patient comes first. We are Pro Cannabis Media.